And of course this world tonight is going out in its ghoulish uh, costumes and so forth, rehearsing and considering the world of evil spirits. Of course it's all, it's all good fun, isn't it? It really is All Saints Day tomorrow, and uh, what we do tonight is just an extension of that. Well, of course, we could speak today about the world of evil spirits. Mr. Smith is taking care of that very nicely on the broadcast, so I don't need to speak on that. I wonder if you realize what else this day is considered to be. Or maybe I could put the question another way. What happened this evening in Wittenberg at the end of the 15th century or was the beginning of the 16th century? Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the cathedral door. And so today is considered to be Reformation Day. There's a bit of trivia for you that you may not have appreciated. How many of you knew that this was Reformation Day before I mentioned it? About half a percent of a congregation, I would say, Mr. Apes. Very few. So now you're alert to the fact that today is, in fact, Reformation Day, and Reformation Day is associated with Halloween and All Saints Day and never differs from it. Perhaps in light of the fact that it's Reformation Day, what would be most appropriate for us to consider is the true spirit that we need to be concerned about, God's Holy Spirit, the means whereby we can be truly reformed and changed. And whenever I think of the aspect of God's Holy Spirit, an incident comes to mind. It was 1973, and uh, we had been sent to what was then Rhodesia, today Zimbabwe, to pastor a number of churches, take care of half of Botswana, half of Mozambique, Malawi, and anywhere else we could get to. And we received a, what we call today a go-to, but a visit request in those days from an individual who wanted to be baptized. And of course in those days, it was, you type out a letter, send it back to them, make arrangements to meet the person in a few weeks' time at a particular place. In due time, we turned up at the location we had established, and here was an elderly gentleman, a man, bear in mind, elderly is very advisable because I was not yet 30 at that point in time, so anything over 30 was elderly, but I would guess he would have been about 60. A very uh, proper looking man, I would have placed him as being a civil servant, uh, if you understand the English term, a civil servant, they are highly uncivil, but this man was highly civil. Uh, very well dressed in a black suit, white shirt, black or very dark tie. And looking at him, he would have been a wonderful person to be baptized. He could have been a real stable feature as part of God's church. And my assistant and I sat and talked with the man, and he told us very clearly why he wanted to be baptized. He had one goal as a result of baptism. He wanted to receive God's Holy Spirit. And as a result of receiving God's Holy Spirit, he wanted to speak in tongues. 
So we tried to point out to him that speaking in tongues was not necessarily the proof that you have God's Holy Spirit. But having God's Holy Spirit created all sorts of other opportunities for you, for him. But over the period of time, he made it abundantly clear that was his one goal. He wanted to be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, and speak in tongues. We visited him again another time, still absolutely wedded to his idea of what he wanted. And it was very sad. But it was a, it was a very telling experience for me as a young uh, minister in God's church. He was a man, he knew he had to be baptized to receive God's Holy Spirit, and the only reason he wanted God's Holy Spirit was he could speak in tongues. Very sad. We think of God's Holy Spirit. We think of God's Spirit in terms of Pentecost. But in reality, God's Holy Spirit is linked to all of the Holy Days. Rather interestingly, we have a wonderful prophecy in Joel chapter 2 about the giving of God's Holy Spirit in the millennium. The Feast of Tabernacles time. We'll come back to that as well. It's interesting though, isn't it, that most of the understanding and most of the reading we do about the Holy Spirit is related, in fact, at Passover. Because it was at a Passover meal that Jesus Christ sat down with his disciples talking about what was going to happen to them some 50 plus days from that point when the Feast of Pentecost came around. Jesus made a promise to those with him, to the eleven, as they were. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. These are verses that we read every Passover, very appropriately. Verse 15, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that it may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, or it, I should say, but you know it, for it dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Very interesting uh, statement by Jesus Christ. Obviously, John's translation into English, or translation of John into English, uses a male he for the Holy Spirit there, or the helper. For your reference, the Holy Spirit has a great identity crisis. Because you see, in Hebrew, ruach, the Holy Spirit in Hebrew, is feminine. In Greek, Hagion Numa, the Holy Spirit in Greek, is neuter. On this occasion, the word helper is masculine, so everyone wants to make the Holy Spirit a he. He's not a he at all. He's neuter. Probably Hebrew does not have a neuter case, as does Greek. 
probably the reason that it is in the feminine is because if there was a neuter in case in, uh, um, or gender rather, in, in Hebrew, it would be neuter in Hebrew as well. That's my private speculation on uh, languages. Totally irrelevant, but you ought to realize that when it talks about he here, it really should be translated as a neuter, as it rather than uh, he. Notice that Jesus Christ said, I will come to you. The one other very important point to bear in mind is here, but Jesus Christ said, I will not leave you orphans. An orphan is a very sad condition because an orphan is lacking those who provide the identity and the direction of life that a child needs. And just by way of an aside, we have an orphan program in Kenya. Because in the western part of Kenya, there is a major epidemic. That was really the seat of the whole AIDS crisis. And the end result was that literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children, ended up being orphans. And that impacts church members. We had one deacon and his wife who had four children of their own, so that was six in their household. And he ended up taking care of something like ten orphans of his and her siblings. They weren't in the church. But the deacon, simple fisherman, found himself having to take care of orphans of his own family because the parents had died as a result of AIDS. Or in many cases, it's manifested in terms of tuberculosis. And I've had to, on several occasions, anoint people because they're suffering from tuberculosis. Very, very sad situation to see a person of that situation, of that suffering from that disease. Literally, flesh and bone. Nothing else. A very tragic new ache for the kingdom of God to be established. And of course it's not just siblings who take on the responsibility for those who are deceased. Parents or grandparents end up having to take on the responsibility for children. And in some cases, children take on the responsibility of children. So in the church, we've been able to help a little bit with the schooling for some of these orphans where they're being taken care of by church members. We've been able to pay the high school fees and their school uniforms and things of that nature to lighten the load for the church members there. But it is a very, very sad situation because even relatives, grandparents, as much and all as they try, can't necessarily fill the void left by a parent. And so Jesus Christ said, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. It really strikes me because of the past few years we've been working with an orphan program. And to see the needs of orphans and to appreciate 
what their particular needs are. And Jesus Christ said, you're not going to be cut off. You're still going to have a great connection and I'm going to be with you. A little later on he said in chapter uh, 16, chapter 16 and verse 5, he said, now I go away to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? You know that. You know where I'm going. I'm going back to my father. But he said, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, the sense of loss. It's painful. Someone walks away. Someone goes out of our lives. We feel a sense of loss. Nevertheless, he said, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send it to you. And when it has come, it will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Uh, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And he talked about how many more things he had to speak to them. A really encouraging point for us to consider. So having this instruction about the Holy Spirit, let's look at how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And let's come back to that dear gentleman we met in uh, Guello in Rhodesia in 1973 and see where he made a great mistake. If you want a title for the sermon, I would like to title it The Necessity of God's Holy Spirit. And you might say, this is the flip side of the sermonette you've just heard. Because if we are to be satisfied with what physical things we have, I would suggest to you at the beginning, we never be satisfied with how much of God's Holy Spirit we have. That here is one area in which we can long for, we can desire and seek more and more as the Eternal provides it, or as, the, as our Father provides it to us. So I'd like to present to you this afternoon, brethren, seven needs we have for the Holy Spirit. The first is very much related to what I've just said about orphans. Because, you see, God's Holy Spirit is an essential need in our life for a relationship. And a relationship which is much more intimate than that of being an orphan. You see, Jesus Christ said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you. And how is the ultimate way in which Jesus Christ comes for us? Well, we can turn to Matthew chapter 25 and we have a parable, don't we? Chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, the return of the bridegroom. And I put it to you, we are obviously using a very different metaphor here or a very different relationship than that of an orphan. We're using the most intimate relationship that exists for human beings, the relationship of a groom and a bride. We have in this particular occasion what is essential to be part of the bride, what is essential for us to be able to join with the groom as part of a bride? 
Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1, it said the, the kingdom of heaven is likened to ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five foolish. The foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. So oil was an essential commodity here. The wise took oil and their lamps and their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom delayed, they slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go you out to meet him. And the foolish said to the wise, Lend us some of your oil. And the wise were wise enough to say, Sorry, if I do that, there may not be enough for both of us. Go to those who buy and sell. And of course, why they went to buy, why they get, went to get supplies. The bridegroom came, the door was shut, and they were on the outside, weeping and wailing of teeth. And he said in verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Oil is symbolized in God's word as a type of God's Holy Spirit. Yes, water is used, fire is used as well. But a number of uh, analogies are used of, uh, to, to present God's Holy Spirit. Oil is one of them. Oil was an essential element in the operation of the tabernacle and the temple. God's dwelling place. It was needed for the offerings. It was needed for the continual burning of a menorah. And it was needed for the anointing of the priests and kings. Isaiah saw the latter function as being a sign of the Holy Spirit. And you can make a note of Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And then Jesus Christ himself quoted from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Where he said, the spirit of the eternal is upon me or the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So the aspect of anointing and oil are linked. And of course we can read John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20 and 27 where it also talks about how we have an anointing that we received from Jesus Christ. But you might say it is to the use of the oil as a light in the temple that Jesus was speaking in the parable, Matthew chapter 25. You may not appreciate it, but think about it sometime. The tabernacle was dark inside. In fact, to be honest, it was pitch black because it had no windows. There was no way in which natural light could get into the tabernacle or the temple. The only light that existed in the temple was from the menorah. And of course it portrays a rather interesting scenario of the church being in a dark world, being the light to the world. The return of Jesus Christ in this parable is set when? At high noon? Don't believe that's what it said. 
It said at midnight, a dark time of the night. We, with our lamps, fueled by the Holy Spirit of God, are the light. And of course, it's rather interesting because in Matthew's Gospel, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, to the beginning of Jesus' detailed preaching, we find in Matthew 5 and verses 14 through 16 that Jesus Christ told us, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. That is a responsibility we are to have, to be the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. And so he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Obviously the good works are coming from what? Something that glorifies the Father. Through the agency of God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13, we're enjoined to be watchful about how we keep ourselves. On this occasion, it's talking about watching our spiritual condition. Do we have enough of God's Holy Spirit so that we can be part of the party to meet the bridegroom? Can we be there with him can we enter into that relationship with him if we don't have God's Holy Spirit we won't be there it's as simple as that the message of the of the the, uh, uh, parable Dr. Winneo gave a sermon I understand a few years back uh, about this particular parable and went into it in some greater detail But the first point then is, if we want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the ultimate relationship for which we have been created and called, we must have God's Holy Spirit. We won't have it. We won't be in that relationship without it. We won't be in that relationship if we don't have enough of it. And so this is something where we desire more so that we can be there with Jesus Christ. The second point I'd like to bring to you in terms of the Holy Spirit is so that we can take on the mind of Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, we will never ever come to think the way in which our Heavenly Father thinks, nor His Son. We won't see things from their perspective. Acts chapter 5 and verse 32, the Apostle Peter told the people that they were witnesses to the things that had happened concerning Jesus Christ. They were witnesses to the miraculous events that had happened since his death and resurrection and since the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it said, so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Having the mind of Christ has a starting point. It's called obedience. The desire to obey. Without a desire to obey, we are never going to have the opportunity of having the Holy Spirit. 
as a result of having the Holy Spirit, we can then start to understand the mind of God. We come back to something that Mr. Armstrong talked about in terms of the spirit of man, the way in which the spirit of man needs a spiritual component to connect to. Do we connect to the spirit of this world, as most of society is going to this evening, or do we desire to connect to the spirit of God? First John chapter 3 and verses 7 through 9. First John 3 verses 7 through 9. John told the church, he said, little children, let no one deceive you. Deception has been the name of a game since the Garden of Eden. Nothing has changed. Satan's methodology, Satan's MO, is the same since Adam and Eve were created. And he's been highly successful. Why should he change it? Well, John was telling us, don't let anyone deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Who's the he? Jesus Christ is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And he said, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so he said, don't let anyone deceive you. Paul also made the same warning to the Thessalonian church. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where he talks about how people are going to seek to deceive individuals, even at the end time. How do we avoid being deceived? By having God's Holy Spirit within our lives. First Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaks at length about the need for God's Holy Spirit and the way in which God's Holy Spirit works in our mind and in our life. And so quite quoting from Isaiah in verse 9, he said, But it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, uh, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. People love to speculate. People love to uh, prognosticate about the future. What it's going to be like. What we will be doing or what our lives will be like in X number of years' time. Or what the next generation will be doing. We love to do that. The Eternal says, you have no idea what the future is like. Without God's Holy Spirit, we don't know what it's like. It's going to be part of the same old grind, a physical world, health issues, wealth issues, transport issues, pollution issues, all of these things. Are they going to go away? No. We just keep on changing the source. You know, New York had a pollution problem in the late 19th century. It was called smell. For those of you who have been to Petra and wandered into the souk, you can have a good idea of what New York smelled like in the late 19th century. 
multiple equine beings urinating and messing on the city streets creates a rather bad aroma. And it also brings with it a plague of things called flies. So we got rid of the horses and we replaced them with automobiles. And so we got diesel smoke and particles in the atmosphere which give us lung cancer. So what are we going to do next? What will we change it for next time? You see, mankind prognosticates about the future and he always creates another problem for himself. But the Eternal says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. Ah, you and I can come to understand what the future is going to be like. How there will be solutions to the problems that humanity faces. And you can start to work through some of these things. I can remember one very, very great lesson when my first year ambassador college. Someone didn't turn up for life and teachings, and it wasn't Dr. Meredith, because this was Brickett Wood before he came. But for some reason, someone had to stand in the gap. And this person was very creative, because being unprepared for where we were, probably didn't even know where we were supposed to be in life and teachings. He said, okay, let's do something different. Got the blackboard in the center of a room and said, okay, give me a commandment that is broken today. Put it on the board. He said, okay, start thinking. If people start obeying this commandment, what are the ramifications? And by the time the 50 minutes was up, the blackboard was covered with writing of all of the changes that could come about as a result of that particular commandment being kept. Society is being transformed in a remarkable way. So we sort of sat there, ah, oh, agog, very appreciative of a very great lesson in terms of it. So he said, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. You and I can have an insight into the future. We can appreciate it in a, a way that other people cannot. But the, he said, the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He said, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man that's in him? We, we understand human things. We can relate to that. We can put people on the moon. And the Russians are going to apparently send someone to the moon when they find enough money to do it. Uh, they hope to do that. So the spirit of man is able to do some remarkable things. Some remarkably bad things, like nuclear fission or fusion, whichever it is. We'd like to do the other, wouldn't we? At what expense to the rest of humanity? What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man that is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So having the Spirit of God, you and I can start to understand things from our Father's perspective. We can see things from his view as opposed to the human view. We can start to see true priorities 
rather than passing priorities that uh, Dr. Scott was talking about in the sermonette. He said, even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So we have access to these things. If we have God's Holy Spirit, we have access to how God sees things in this world. What our Father's priorities are for humanity. Why he desires his son to come back as king of kings and lord of lords. And we can see it from his perspective. And so he carries on. He said, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man can't receive them. You must have God's Holy Spirit to be able to understand it to take on the mind of Christ. And of course, having the mind of Christ is going to do what? It's going to make the desire to have that relationship with Jesus Christ, to be part of the very bride of Jesus Christ, something even more burning within us and more important to us so that we make sure that we have more oil in reserve rather than thinking, well, like most men, they see the tank needle going down on the car and it gets on reserve and my wife gets very upset. We're always saying, well, there's another 50 miles yet. And she'll tell me, well, yeah, but we've been on reserve for a while now, you know, five miles. We, we think we can get by, we can, we can scrape to where we need to go. That's not the idea that we should have in terms of Matthew chapter 25 and the amount of oil we should have. We should want to see the tank full. Maybe a spare can in the the, uh, trunk of a car as well. So we have some extra. So we have that responsibility. The third aspect I'd like to present to you to terms of God's Holy Spirit, is to be able to read with understanding. I think this is something that I take up with the students from time to time. Because they think, well, we've got the Bible. The problem is, so do the Presbyterians. So So do the Methodists, Baptists, you name it. Most of them use the same Bible. But they come to horribly different conclusions. They will keep Halloween parties. They'll keep Christmas, Easter. They'll do everything that we don't do. They'll have a church service on Friday night so you can go and play golf on Sunday if you like. They'll make anything convenient for you you like. And they justify themselves out of the same pages of the same book that you and I have on our laps. And many of you may well have the Bible on your laps today that you used in a previous church. So just having the Bible isn't the answer by itself, is it? Having God's Holy Spirit is the essential thing. I have been amazed at times because I know at times people get very hung up 
on translating the Bible correctly. And I, there is a proper case for that, a great case to be made for that. But I go to places like Africa and I see these people who have come to the knowledge of God's truth with some of the most abominably bad translations they could possibly have. Terrible translations. And yet somehow, God's Holy Spirit is able to help them weave through the obstacles of the translation they have and come to the right conclusion. Remarkable. Jesus Christ in John 16 Let's return there in verse 12. John 16, in verse 12, he said, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He's going to, it's going to enable you to understand the plan of God. You might say, this is the way in which we start to get the mind of God, isn't it? God's Holy Spirit starts to work with us and enable us to read things. An object lesson for us. The Apostle Paul used the same scriptures when he was a Pharisee as when he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Same 22 books. Nothing changed in terms of the books. What happened? He got new glasses. No. He got new eyes. He had eyes which were powered by God's Holy Spirit. And suddenly, what he had read from his youth, and I would suggest to you, the Apostle Paul could probably have recited major tracts of the Old Testament, if not the entirety of the Old Testament, from heart, it suddenly took on a new dimension. It wasn't the way he used to remember it from Pharisaic school. It suddenly took on a whole new dimension for him. And so God's Holy Spirit can make that radical change in our lives. So that the words take on a meaning that is enlivened, that provides for life. He said, the spirit, when the spirit of truth has come, it will guide you into all truth. It will not speak of its own authority, but whatever it hears, it will speak. And it will tell you things to come. It will glorify me. Okay, so... The role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the role of Jesus Christ. He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that it will take of mine and declare it to you. Quite an amazing point to consider. The need for God's Holy Spirit. And of God's Word does not have the same amount of life and vigor that it should have, or that it once had, maybe we ought to ask for more of God's Holy Spirit so that we can be enlivened by the Word of God. And it can come to mean that much more to us. 
so that we in turn can then have the mind of Christ and we can seek to be in that relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. Quite an incredible scripture when you stop and consider it. He said in verse 3, Paul said, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't really realize the importance of Jesus Christ. Now, many people consider themselves Christian and consider that they know Jesus Christ and they will talk to that end. But the Apostle Paul is saying, if you don't have God's Holy Spirit, you haven't begun. You don't understand who this being is. And that's another story. We'll discuss another time. Fourth point I'd like to you to consider in terms of the, the uh, Holy Spirit. We need God's Holy Spirit to enable us to pray most effectively. You thought it was time you needed, right? Yes, we need time. But it's God's Holy Spirit as well. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 27. Paul said, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, in our shortcomings. Yes, we are physical beings. We are seeking to understand the mind of God, but we are still physical beings. Some of us find ourselves challenged by growing old. And we can't remember. Where was that that I used to read? Or where did I leave my concordance? Or whatever the case may be. We have challenges simply because we are physical human beings. And Paul is saying the Spirit, God's Spirit, helps in those weaknesses. He goes on, he says, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Wow. You get down and spend time on your knees and you think you're doing an effective job. And Paul is saying, we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. And it's rather interesting, the uh, use of uh, the, the translation is as we ought. The Greek there does not refer to the manner of praying, but to the linkage, you might say, between the prayer and what is really needed. Uh, Dr. Scott in the sermonette was talking about asking God to remove trials. How many of us have asked God to remove a trial from our lives? And the Eternal says, no, I want this trial to continue because I have a greater purpose. My immediate comfort is not our Father's ultimate goal. My eternal character is my Father's ultimate goal, isn't it? Your eternal character is our Father's ultimate goal. But oftentimes when we have problems, we face problems, we don't see that. We just see the immediate problem we face. 
the Apostle Paul said, we don't know how to, we, we sometimes pray about the wrong things. Praying about ourselves. And it should be about our Father's will. A great example of that in Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ understood there's a greater power at work here. And oftentimes we forget that. And so Paul carries on and said, the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered. Or maybe it's not a, maybe it's not a trial that you and I face. Maybe it is about calling people in a particular area. We don't necessarily know where our Father wants to call people. We have a responsibility to do His work. But where He calls people is His own prerogative. We might desire to see them being called in particular areas. The Eternal said, no, I'm focusing over here now. This is where I'm calling people. These are the people I want to work with. These are the ones I want to prepare for my kingdom. And so uh, he said, verse 27, Now he who searches the heart, who searches the heart? The word of God, Jesus Christ, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So here is Jesus Christ working in concert with the Holy Spirit on our behalf helping our prayers become that much more effective. Helping us see where our prayers need to be more effective. So even our prayers need God's Holy Spirit. First John chapter 4, First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, we have a wonderful uh, promise. He said, this is the confidence that we have in him. Even if we do anything according to his will, he hears us. Yeah, we may ask for the wrong thing. But if we're doing the right thing, he's going to hear us. And okay, what may be wrong about the request can be made right through the aid of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 15, we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions, but we've been asked of him. And another scripture relating to our prayers is Ephesians 6, verse 18. We're after talking about the armor of the Spirit. In verse 18, he said, Paul told the church at Ephesus, praying always with prayer, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Ah, so our prayers and the Spirit are related here. And so he's talking about prayer on the one hand, what we might do in terms of regular prayer, and he's also talking about supplication, those very intense periods of prayer for real needs that exist. So it doesn't matter what form of prayer it is that we're associated with. God's Spirit needs to be associated with it. And he said, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, of course, brethren, the fifth point, you might say, follows on from that, because 
if we are doing these things, if we are really seeking to develop that relationship with Jesus Christ, if we're really seeking to build the mind of Jesus Christ within us, if we're really seeking to understand his word, the depths of his word, and if we're praying with the aid of God's Holy Spirit, what is going to be the consequence? The fifth need for God's Holy Spirit is that to produce the fruit that is needed in terms of overcoming sin and this world. To produce sin, uh, to produce fruit by which we overcome sin. You might phrase it another way, to be a doer of God's word, not a hearer. As, John, as James speaks to in James chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. But turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. Where the Apostle Paul said, I say then, walk in the Spirit. This, what follow, what follows in these verses, cannot be accomplished without God's Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. It's an opposition. Contrary. And the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, he talks about the works of the flesh. All of them self-centered. All of them inward directed. He carries on through verse 19, 20, 21. And he said, verse 21, Of which I tell you, I've told you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That relationship, we mentioned at point one, will never become a reality. Why? Because you're not seeking the mind of Christ. You're still seeking the mind of this world. He carries on, he said, the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence of the Spirit being in my life is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against which there's no law. Why is there no law against these? Because they're all outgoing. They're all representative of our Father's character. They're all representative of His Son's character. They're all representative of the family that will inherit eternity. This is, you might say, the outline of our character. He said, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So a very powerful statement by the Apostle Paul. The fruits of the Spirit have to be evidence, evident within our lives. Should be evident within our lives. We ought to be able to look back and see ways in which they are evident in the way in which we deal with one another and with other people.
How do we deal? Are they represented by what Paul has outlined there in verses 22 and 23? If they're not, then we need to do some wanting, wanting more of God's Holy Spirit. Making the grass greener where it should be green, so to speak. Of course, that then brings us to point number six, which was where our poor unfortunate gentleman appeared in 1973. The first five points meant nothing to him. He simply wanted a gift of God's Holy Spirit. Now, of course, God's Holy Spirit is a gift in the first place. It's only given to those who obey him. The scriptures we read in John 14, 15, and 16 about God's Holy Spirit indicate it's something that is a gift freely given to us by our Father. But Paul also talks about gifts of the Spirit. Tongues, you might say, is one of the gifts of the Spirit. And it's certainly not the most important of the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you can read the whole chapter. I will leave it to you to read sometime this week to consider. Tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is not a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. There is a difference between the two. You and I should have all of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You can't cherry pick them. All of them should be evident in our lives. Not necessarily all of the gifts of the Spirit will be evident in our lives. I can assure you, I do not have the gift of tongues. Probably that is why I have to go and deal with these people in other parts of the world. Because I can't learn their language. And it keeps me humble. But I think I can teach. I guess if I can look at my life and think, have I got a gift that God has given to me? Yes, I think I can teach. So what should I do about it? Ignore it and want something else? To give gift of interpretations of tongues. Don't think that's likely. I'm supposed to focus upon the gift that I have. And be satisfied with that. Be content with that. If our Father wants to give me another gift, fine. Then I will do the best that I can with that gift. But our poor gentleman back in 1973 simply wanted a gift of the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't prepared to do what was necessary to receive a gift of God's Holy Spirit. Gifts come as a result of everything we've talked about this afternoon. We have a great example in Acts chapter 8 of someone who tried to bypass the system. More egregious. You know, I feel pity for my poor man in, in Guello in 1973. I look forward to seeing him in the resurrection and helping him understand more effectively why he shouldn't be looking to speak in tongues. But I'd say pity upon Simon Magus, who felt that he could buy 
a gift of God's Holy Spirit. By the laying on of the hands, people could receive God's Holy Spirit. And he offered the disciples, the apostles, money. And Peter told him, your money perish with you. We have this incredible situation that we need to realize. The gifts only come through making ourselves at one with our Father and the Son and seeking to make the things that are important to them important in our lives. The seventh point, brethren, bring this to an end, really takes us back to the beginning because above all else, God's Holy Spirit is essential for eternal life. That relationship we're being offered is an eternal relationship. Unending. Will never be broken. And without God's Holy Spirit, we'll never get there. In terms of a feast, it's interesting to consider that God's Holy Spirit is a prerequisite for entering the promised land. And one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is a man about whom we know almost nothing, but yet at the same time we know an incredible amount. We know he is of the tribe of Judah. We know who his father was. But that's about all we know about him. But we know everything about him because the Eternal recorded that this man is of a different spirit. He is going to inherit the promised land. The man I talk of is Caleb. Numbers chapter 14, verse 28. But my servant Caleb, because he is of a different spirit, he will inherit. Ah, he inherited a physical land as a result of having a different spirit. But what an accolade to be left in terms of Caleb. I don't know how rich he was. I guess he didn't have a bank account because they didn't have bank accounts in those days. And he didn't have a Mercedes Benz or Rolls Royce or Bentley car because they didn't have those things. But I know nothing about his physical well-being in life. But I know how the eternal sees him. And I think he's going to be there in that first resurrection. With a comment like that recorded in God's word. He will have to be in the first resurrection. You see, it was essential for Caleb, for Joshua, to have God's Holy Spirit to lead those people into the promised land. It's essential for you and me to have God's Holy Spirit to enter His rest, the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, he said, The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He said, those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So he said, 
There's different ways of life here. We drop down to verse 11. And we see the consequence of it. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if you walk according to the spirit, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Which dwells in you? The promise of eternal life is a given. But it requires God's Holy Spirit. Today, the world is hell-bent on worshipping another God. You and I have the privilege of being here before our Creator and before our Father to worship them, to learn of their ways, to learn of the true spiritual values that we should inculcate in our lives. The importance of that true spiritual value so that we can be part of the kingdom.